0: Rarely on this show do I use the words taking the world by storm, but in this case, I'm going to, and I'm referring to my next guest, Emmanuel Acho. And if you are not familiar with his web series or his now number three New York Times bestselling book called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, you have now been put on notice. This is required reading slash washing And I, it was such a privilege to have Emmanuel on the show. We had a fantastic conversation. Now, if you don't know Emmanuel, uh, he went to school for sports management and in college that is, and then was drafted into the NFL. So after a a number of seasons, I think, I don't know, five or six seasons in the NFL uh, played for the Eagles, the Browns. he left football but then went to becoming an announcer and you'll see why as soon as you or you hear you hear why whether you're watching or listening because he's incredibly charismatic but all of that was really in, in you know the way that I'm looking at his work right now was just a setup for the amazing work that he's doing right now to facilitate conversations that are aimed to create a safe space and to bridge the I think, as to his word, cultural divide between black culture and white culture. Um, in un- uncomfortable conversations with the black man, he takes on the questions, huge and small, insensitive and taboo, that a lot of white Americans are free to ask. And yet, those questions are questions, in his words, that all Americans need answers to now more than ever. So this. You know his process to to speak to the creator and the entrepreneur who are listening right now. His process is phenomenal. He gets started without having all of the stuff. We recount how he went from zero to one in his world of creativity and specifically creating the work that he's working on right now, and it is fascinating. I know it will rock you, uh, and that's speaking to the creator and the entrepreneur in you. But now speaking to the human in you, you're going to want to listen to this episode. It's incredibly powerful, and then, as my hope, we framed this episode specifically so that you could go pick out a couple specific episodes from his YouTube show and a couple of chapters uh, out of his book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. So, Emmanuel is so just, he's a huge personality, glowing, brilliant, generous, um, incredibly well spoken, and I can't wait for you to get in the show, so I'm going to get out of the way before we do um, just... Put your smile on, open up your heart, your head, the connection between the two, and enjoy. Hey, before we get into the show, I got an announcement. My book, Creative Calling, is more than one year old right now, and it is still crushing. Thanks so much to the support from you, this community, and so I got two two um, asks. One, if you do not have the book, my goodness, I would invite you to pick it up again. It's called Creative Calling, available anywhere books are sold. I put my entire life, all my experience around creativity, entrepreneurship, um, about pursuing your dreams, getting unstuck, to do the things that we are put on this planet to do. So if you don't have a copy, please pick it up. And part two, if you do have a copy and right now you're going, yeah, yeah, I, I got it when you first wrote it, whatever, one year ago, well, if you are in that camp, first of all, thank you. Second of all, it would mean a ton, as in the world to me, if you left a review at Amazon or wherever you picked up the book. I'm currently sitting at several hundred five-star reviews, which is really helpful for getting the message of the book. In fact, the message is my whole life. Creative Live, this podcast, um, the book, it is all sewn together, and it would really, really help spread the word, the ideas, the vision that we have for this one precious life, and this cool uh, position we find ourselves in, being able to uh, not just feel like corks in the tide, but to create life that we want for ourselves so if that sounds like something you're into i would love your support and in the meantime i'm gonna get out of the way so you can get back to the show but wanted to say thanks so much Manny hot welcome to the show thanks for being here bud
1: my man the pleasure is mine good to see you
0: thanks for um carving some time out of your now very very busy schedule because you just dropped your book Uncomfortable conversations with the black man, and it's cracking all the way up to, uh, I think, number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations, man. That's huge.
1: Thank you, brother. You know what's crazy? I'm thinking when you pour so much effort, energy, when you literally uh, pop a blood vessel in your vocal cords while recording an audio book, but then you see your name, number three, on the New York Times bestsellers list, it makes it all worth it.
0: Well, congratulations, and uh, it's kind of like you're just adding that to your list of uh, amazing stuff that you've done, including, but not limited to, uh, playing football in the NFL, having an award-winning web series uh, by the same title, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which originally drew me to your work, uh, incredible, incredible uh, series that you put together, but I want to go back to the beginning, and for the handful of people who don't know you because you're damn near everywhere right now. I had McConaughey <laughs> on the show not too long ago. and We started talking about you. He blur- he blurbed your book. I mean, you got you got McConaughey on your team. That's impressive. That's uh, but let's go back to the beginning because I want to know a little bit more about you before we get into your work. So um, give us a little bit of um, where you came from, how you got your your start in the world, and what, what you thought about as a young person and what your conditions yeah. were like growing up.
1: So I grew up first generation American in Dallas, Texas. My parents born and raised in Nigeria. Don't know if you know about Nigerian households, but in Nigerian households, as my parents would say in their thick Nigerian accent, you must be a doctor. You must be a lawyer. You must be an engineer. Like Chase, you're supposed to be a super genius. There's no such thing as working too hard. So I go to an all white affluent high school from grades five through 12, both middle school and high school. Uh, You're supposed to be a national merit scholar. Go to Harvard. Go to Yale, go to Columbia. I looked around, I was like, oh, I'm 6'2", 240 pounds. I guess I'll play football. Um, Get a full scholarship to the University of Texas. I'm the youngest of four. My older brother, directly above me, he played ball at Texas as well. We played there together for three years. He gets drafted to the Arizona Cardinals, 2011. I get drafted to the Cleveland Browns in 2012. Played in the NFL for four years. I was navigating black culture at that point because as a young kid, I navigated and was immersed in white culture. Remember, although my skin is Black Chase, my culture is Nigerian. And what I've realized as an adult, there's a difference between color and culture. And so I was navigating these spaces as a pre-adolescent and adolescent, trying to figure out my own identity. And so that's really my upbringing uh, in a nutshell.
0: Incredible, and to have the... uh, the ideas that you just shared very quickly are, um, front and center in the book. And what, one of the first things that fascinated me is the understanding of being, uh, dark skinned and growing up in a white culture in Dallas and the juxtaposition of being in the NFL. I think you said in the book, it was 80 or 90% black on your team. Yeah. And was it that the leap between, uh, growing up in Dallas And college, college to pro, which of those was the biggest shock to your system and got you started thinking about some of the things that you've been working on the last couple of years?
1: Great question. Absolutely. Going from high school to college. See, going in high school, one, I went to an all-boys school, Chase. Okay, no girls on campus. We wore uniforms. Uh, We wore gray slacks, Chase, and white shirts. That was a uniform. Until you were a senior, you were special. You wore gray slacks and blue button-down shirts. It wasn't all that special. So now I graduated with 75 people. Now I'm at the University of Texas, 50,000 people. And girls were there. So that was already a shocker. But beyond that, I graduated with five Black people. Now I'm playing on a football team with about 85 Black people. So I was the odd kid. I was trying to navigate my Blackness at Texas because I was so white-cultured listening yeah. to, to, to white music, hanging out in white crowds, going to white house parties. I say this not to be racially uh, promoting. I say this to be racially realistic. See, in our world, you got black and white people, but you got black and white culture. So now I'm in college and I'm the nerd. Everybody's like, oh, you, you don't wanna to went to the all boys school? You don't wanna to went to the private school, the all white school? So that was such a hard transition. I, I, I make this equation. So many of us grew up watching the movie Tarzan, and in Tarzan, he was fully human, but because he grew up with animals, he lived his life believing he was an animal, until he stumbled upon other humans and was like, wait, y'all look like me, y'all sound like me, y'all dress like me. Well, Tarzan didn't really wear any clothes, but you get the point. Um, The point being, when I got to Texas, I was like, wait, Black people, like, Y'all look like me. Y'all dress like me. Y'all sound like me. And that was a much different learning curve than going to the NFL.
0: So what was your number one takeaway from that? Or it doesn't have I hate I hate superlatives, so I'm going to relieve you of that because I, I hate when people ask me, what's the most, the biggest? What was something that struck you besides the culture that you had been raised in and a new culture that you were emerged in what were a handful of the the um mental shifts what was your awareness of this and did it change your behavior how did you how did you start to be different in the world
1: uh, it allowed me to be my most authentic self see when i was at this affluent white school and even now uh when i'm around white people i'm different right i do so many zoom talks now chase and I like wearing jewelry. But if I'm about to go do a Zoom talk with a company or a corporation, I'll tuck my necklace in, um, I'll make sure that I'm, 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 you know, portraying myself in the most digestible manner for my white brothers and sisters. I say it like this, I take the seasoning off the food so my white brothers and sisters can digest it, right? I take that little extra kick off. And so when I was at Texas um, and now around Black people, I could just talk with my normal vernacular. I could be me, and that was such a hard juxtaposition when you're around non-black people, or around people that don't understand black culture, because then they'll say stuff like, uh, Emmanuel, why are you acting so uh, duggish? Why are you acting like such a gangster? And I'm like, what do you mean? Just because like I say, like, what's up, or I say, what's good, instead of saying, how are you doing? Right, Like, what do you mean, what, what about that is gangster? So I really was just allowed to be my fullest, most authentic self. All
0: right, fast forward to, I do not know when, but I'm hoping, number one, you can tell me when, and number two, you can tell me what. what when did you realize that this is something that you needed to personally take action on in the world? Because my understanding from reading the book and watching, I think, pretty much every video, on your channel, you, 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 there's not a lot of dissection of those moments when you, you shift into like, okay, I went from understanding, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backwards as many people have said, and you, you connect to the dots and you're like, okay, cool. And there, at some point between, you know, college and NFL and post NFL, you've reconciled your identity and then shifted that identity into action and you needed to take this topic on. So can you tell us when that was and what was there some moment? Was it a series of moments? What was a light bulb for you to uh, dedicate a good chunk of your, your time and effort and heart and soul into the work that you're doing now?
1: So I am huge chase into people understanding things. I don't like miscommunication. Because you'll end up arguing, Chase, for no reason, right? Just to like, be right. Hey, just to be right. Like, people, if you're, if you're communicating differently, you end up arguing for no reason. In 2016, Colin Kaepernick took a knee. And I, in 2016, was in Austin, Texas. I had just retired. And I got, all the, I, I got the chief of police in Austin and his two assistants. I got him on stage with three black influencers in Austin, a former Olympic athlete, another uh, Olympic athlete, current at the time, an NFL player myself, and maybe there was one more NFL player. And I just had a dialogue that we broadcasted to the world. That was 2016. I didn't really do anything again after that because I didn't feel called or compelled. Well, then after the murder of George Floyd, Chase, I said, I got to do something. I said, white people and black people were not getting along because there's a communication barrier, amongst other things. But it's not just... A, 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 a sin problem. It's not just about love and about, and about caring. It's also about understanding. It's hard to understand something you don't care about because then you, 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 it's hard to care about something you don't understand because then you end up being incidentally offensive, not just intentionally offensive. So, so Chase, after the mur- murder of George Floyd, I said, I gotta do something. I said, my voice is my sword. I didn't go out and march. have no problem with those who did march. I didn't go out there and protest. I have no problem with those who did protest. I said, let me create, because that's what I have the skills and abilities to do.
0: So step one in creating, besides that moment on stage with the police and some of your co-collaborators, what was the first thing you set out to do?
1: Man, the, oh, listen, you asked me some good questions. The first thing I set, 10 years in this care. <laughs> The first thing I set out to do, get a group of people who have the same vision as me. I called a woman named Rachel Lindsay. She's the first black bachelorette. Y'all may know her from season, I don't know, because I don't watch the show, but that's my homegirl. Uh, like maybe season 13 or 17, who knows? Uh, so I call Rachel Lindsay. I say, Rachel, I have an idea. I want to start this show called Questions White People Have. I wanna get three white people at a table, three black people at a table. White people reach into the fishbowl, they ask a question, let the black people answer it. That was what the show and concept was gonna be. I wanted the world to see white and black people having dialogue. Rachel was game for it, but she was like, hey, I'm in Miami, I can't get together with you for about a week. I said, I don't have the time to wait. I said, you know what? I gotta do it myself. So the original idea, the original, the first thing I did was try to find like-minded people. After Rachel couldn't do it and I had to do it myself, Chase, I called up a wedding videographer and my best friend who's an Olympic gold medalist in the 2016 Rio Olympics, and we recorded the first episode. The wedding videographer shot it and my best friend produced it. And that is how it happened. It wasn't some sort of high quality, Emmy award winning production company. I I, I rented out a all white room in Austin, Texas. (laughs) I had a wedding videographer. And I had an Olympic 100-meter sprinter, and we sat there. And 25 million views later, uh, the rest was history.
0: There's an infinity of awesome shit in that. What you just said right there, because so many people who are listening, the audience is largely creators and entrepreneurs who so pay attention to my show and Creative Live and all the things that I do. And right now, if I've if I could list the number of people who said I can't get started because X and Y and Z, the list would be infinity. And so thank you for demonstrating with your actions, how to get started at doing anything. But to me, it's not your process necessarily that uh, stands out to me as something different from so many other people aside from what I just shared about getting going. I love the urgency, but specifically, I wanna shift our attention now to the content. Mm-hmm. wrapped up in the questions you ask and the concept of the show, I mean, previous guests on the show, a person that I really love, Justin Simeon, he created the movie Dear White People. When you said the original topic of your show, I thought that was fascinating. And then you landed on Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man. But presumably, when you started your show with your your friend and the wedding videographer, you had... A few steps in mind but not everything had you changed the name of the show had you decided that you were going to record all of your journey and share it with the world or what had you decided at that moment that made you go headlong into the content that you're now well famous for for putting out there
1: chase i always go to the end before i start I go to the end before I start at the beginning. In 2015, I was playing for the Eagles. I get a direct message from a fan. Emmanuel, if you get 2,000, if I get 2,000 retweets, will you go to prom with me? I say, if you get 10,000, you got yourself a deal. Now, this is before players were going to prom. I thought, Chase, no chance. I looked up after two hours. I went to get sushi, Scottsdale, Arizona. She had 9,987 retweets. True story. But here's the kicker, Chase. When I said... If uh, you get 10,000, you got a deal. I ended it by saying, may the odds be ever in your favor. That's the line from Hunger Games, because I knew in the event this blows up, I want to have played this right. Well, next thing you know, Elizabeth Banks, the star of Hunger Games, she ends up retweeting it and reaching out, et cetera, et cetera. Why do I say that? I literally checked an email yesterday after making the New York Times bestsellers list on June 1st. Four hours after I dropped the first episode, I emailed my book agents. And I said, hey, we have 400,000 views on Twitter in four hours. I want to write a book. You know what, taste I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to read to you the email yes. that I sent.
0: This is the goods.
1: This is June 1st. Four hours after the first episode. This is before McConaughey. This is before Oprah. This is before Roger Goodell. This is before anything. I say hey, y'all, this is a concept I would turn into a book. It's not a social justice book, but a book that's a safe space, educating my white brothers and sisters who have limited exposure to black people to answer the questions they have but have been too scared to ask. Chase, June 1st, after 400,000 views, I have 70 million views now. I did not know I would be over 70 million, but I saw the end, Chase. And I started, and that is what planning and creativity is about. It's about having a plan and just putting it in motion.
0: So many lessons on the creative front. It's just, um, I really thought this episode was going to be all about the content, but your relentless, um, the, starting with the end in mind is incredible. Obviously, uh, it's the what propels a lot of people to success because you'll find a way. Is there a part of you that, knew this like or maybe clearly there was but what part of you where does that come from in your past this the urgency with which you act the the i won't say lack of a filter but i will say the filter volume being down is that part of when you tapped into your true identity and you started hanging around people who looked like you and gave you the freedom to be you was it something that your parents taught you? The, was that the Nigerian, instead of being a doctor, you're going to be a media personality? Like what gave you, what unlocked this for you? Because there's so many people right now that would would kill for that.
1: I would say a couple things. I would say I've always understood there's a difference between your career and your calling. Your career is what you're paid for. Your calling is what you're made for. See, and when your calling calls you, you better pick it up. So I always knew that my calling would be something different. But I also grew up in a household where my dad's a pastor. So my dad communicates for a living. So because I sat in church every Sunday and Wednesday and listened to different people take stories, put them in analogy form so that the audience can digest it, what do I do in my conversations? I take stories. I put them in analogy form so the audience can digest it. I took my skill set, Chase, and I figured out how could my skill set be pivoted to relate to the audience. And that's what I do in life. I will borrow from any creative or creator. One of the best things I ever did in my life, I went to a Taylor Swift concert. As a black man in Philadelphia, I'm sitting there in a stream of what, sea of white people at a Taylor Swift concert. And as soon as you walked in, she gave everybody a wristband. And the wristband, I didn't realize at the time. But when she started playing her hit song Bad Blood, the whole arena lighted up, lit up red and white because the wristband was color coordinated to her set list. See, I realized at that time, if you're a creator and a creative, you have to think steps in advance to enhance the moment. So in my first episode, when I'm sitting in that all white room, I could have done it in my kitchen. I could have done it off an iPhone. I didn't have to pay my videographer a couple hundred bucks, thousand dollars to shoot it. But had I settled for less, I wouldn't be where I am today.
0: Man, I'm going to riff on a couple of the titles of the chapters of your book, which is truly incredible, by the way, the fact that you wrote that thing and got it out in like that. It's bonkers timeline. For those of you don't know about the publishing world, it is usually a it's a much different planet. So the fact that you had a well-timed piece of work is one thing I think that you spoke authentically that the message was uh, an urgent one. Uh, Hopefully that's what snapped the publisher into action because this is a piece that we all need. What do you say? Sorry. What do you see when you see me is the title of the second chapter of the book. Talk to me about that,
1: man. I said that it's kind of like when you see us, the first thing you see is our skin color. So when you see when you see human beings, you see your hair, you see their shapes, you see their sizes, but you don't know who you are really. You don't know who I am. So when, when talking about like, what do you see when you see me? It's like, if all you see is what you see, then you do not see all there is to be seen. If all you see is what you see, then you do not see all there is to be seen. And so if all you see when you see Emmanuel Lacho is his skin color, then you don't see all there is to be seen. And I'm like, let's dive into that.
0: The Mythical Me, Angry Black Men is the title of chapter, (laughs) what is that? Chapter five.
1: Man, there's so many myths in our society. If you go back and it might be uh, I'm not going to name the magazine because I don't want to be wrong. Ah, I'm going to name it. I think it's Vogue. There's a picture of LeBron James back in the day dribbling a basketball, holding um, in, one arm, in one arm. And then the other arm, uh, I think Giselle, Tom Brady's wife, is in his other arm on the cover of Vogue. I had LeBron looking like this huge, angry black man. And Giselle just looking like this beautiful, dainty princess. And it got criticized because it was very reminiscent of King Kong. Um, the world has portrayed black people oftentimes as angry Black men and angry Black women. And so the mythical me is that I'm just a big, large, angry, overly violent, aggressive, and physical Black man, because that's what the world has portrayed us to be for so long.
0: I'm I'm resisting going into the, the, you, you provide so many vehicles and avenues for remedies to some of these things, but I'm like, it's, to me, this is required reading. It is required that people, if you at all are, if you've gotten this far into this podcast with yours truly in a minute, you have to just, you have to get the book because the, I, I don't feel like a conversation that's an hour long or 45 minutes or whatever can do justice to it, but I do want to peel one layer back. And the layer that I want to go a couple clicks in on is you cannot fix a problem you do not know that you have. And t- it seems like this is at the heart of the work that you've done with the series and the book. And so I'm asking you to, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. You cannot fix, fix a problem you do not know you have. So get
1: this, I grew up in a church, uh, Chase. So you hear a lot of church cliches at times. It's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. It's not about race, it's about grace. I was so tired of these cliches, Chase, because I'm like, no, y'all don't understand. He who knows what is right and doesn't do it, this is sin. Let me elaborate. Chase, if you and I were walking into a, a building and I walk, um, I don't know you're behind me and I walk into the door and don't hold the door open, no harm, no foul. It wasn't wrong. I didn't know. it. But if I open the door, I see you, and then I sliver into the door and let it shut right behind me, now that's a problem because I knew what I was doing and was conscious of my action. Chase, when I was 13 at my affluent white high school, they would often say, Emmanuel, you don't even talk like you're black. Emmanuel, you don't even dress like you're black. Or Chase, my favorite, Emmanuel, you're like an Oreo. The crowd says, black on the outside, white on the inside. They didn't know they were emotionally killing me. They didn't know how offensive they were being. They didn't know that it was a problem and you can't fix a problem you don't know exists. In our country, so many white people are committing what I would say is involuntary murder. Chase, our judicial system, there are levels and rungs to murder. First degree, premeditated. Second degree, it's a crime of passion. But then you get down to involuntary manslaughter. It's still lethal, but it's not intentional. So much racism currently occurs involuntarily. It's not overt slavery, first degree. We, we thankfully don't often see murders like George Floyd, crime of passion, second degree. We just currently exist in that involuntary racism. I want to shine light and open up the aperture of my white brothers and sisters' understanding so that they can realize there is a problem and let's fix it.
0: All right. Um, if you watch even a cursory amount of the videos uh, that you have put out there, if you well, I've already encouraged people to read read the entire book because I think it's it literally should be required reading. It seems like the gap that you're trying to to erase, or maybe the flip side is a better way of thinking about it. the space that you're trying to create. We'll put it in the positive. Is for these awkward questions. I mean, look at the title. Walk me through one, two, or three of what you think the most important questions that white people should be asking and give us a top level or however deep you want to go answer to a handful of those.
1: Um, I think the first question, which is a gateway to bridge this gap, is um, if white people ask, number one, do I understand that I'm privileged? Then number two, what am I doing with my white privilege? That's the first thing. That's the gateway to the conversation. Chase, I was walking down the streets of Beverly Hills three weeks ago. I walked into a restaurant, I ordered my meal, it said, Emmanuel, I love your show, your meal's on me. See Chase, I didn't get a free meal because I'm black, I didn't get a free meal because I'm 6'2", I got a free meal because I was famous and I had famous person privilege. See, white privilege isn't saying your life hasn't been hard, it's saying your skin color hasn't contributed to that difficulty. So now that my white brothers and sisters know, okay, wait, because of my white skin, I have been granted immunity from certain punishment or I have been granted access to certain places, what am I doing with my privilege? Sometimes, Chase, if I'm, walking with, uh, if I'm walking with my white friends and we get stopped for whatever reason, I'll ask my white friend to talk. I'm not going to speak up because they're going to treat you differently than me. What are you doing with your privilege? Um, so I think that's probably the first question. The second question and the last question, because this is the most important. Am I living a life that is integrated culturally and color based? Chase, it wasn't enough for us to... To, to outlaw segregation. We should have mandated integration. That's the problem in our society. My coach would always say, don't be like water. Water takes the easiest route. Chase, if I were to pour water on the ground, it would navigate the terrain, the easy the path of least resistance. So I would have my white brothers and sisters ask themselves, am I growing up in a white house, in a white neighborhood, in a white cul that, going to a white school, white churches, white religious gatherings, and white small groups and white sporting events? Because if I'm doing that, then I'm only perpetuating the problem because I'm only perpetuating an ignorant lifestyle. Ignorant has such a volatile and negative connotation. No, yeah. you are just ignoring something. And so those would be the two questions that I would have my white brothers and sisters do that. All
0: right, let's go to the first one. You led with that and... Uh... I've got got some experiences I want to ask uh, some questions around. So um, part of my effort was to have diverse, has always been to have diverse voices, but especially after George Floyd's murder. So a couple of guests that I had Roxanne Gay, uh, Ijima Olulo. And just as an example, it it was made clear that by them to me, both of them in, in both before, during and after the conversation, in some subtle ways, that look at the, that it's not their job to prescribe the answer to the problems. And part of what I'm hearing from you and part of like the, the actual f- space that you are creating, and I, I respect that, I respect their answer because that is just an additional burden. Now, as a person who is white, a person of privilege, a male, I, the, the list of privileges that I have is so long and trying to facilitate an understanding here, when you are creating this space, is this a different approach? If um, say Roxanne or anyone who's been on the show and who has shared that, that um, the struggle and the desire to not provide the solution. um, And yet your twist is your, your approach seems to put a twist on that you actually seem to try to try and provide at least not the solution but a vehicle for the solution which is conversation is that intentional and how do you feel is that um do you feel like you have an allegiance to the black community to solve this problem in a particular way i'm just fascinated by the intersection of um how to solve so many of these problems
1: great 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 question. It
0: comes from of the heart. It, it, really, it truly does, man. It comes from, like, I want to contribute. I want to help. I want to find the right way in. And there are so many disparate voices out there. And these are some of the leaders, you know, of the strongest voices. I
1: was on a call with Ijoama Oluo uh, last week. She's Nigerian. And yeah. so, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you I know, Lovey
0: also also my... a Nigerian friend of mine, yeah. guest, she's been on the show. She's crazy and amazing. So anyway, sorry, just, uh,
1: so, so get this, um, I played team sports, say football, the highest level, National Football League. And what you learn in team sports is sometimes you have to pick up the slack of the man to your left and to your right for the betterment of the team. Sometimes you might be tired, you might be exhausted, you might not feel like it. But in team sports, if the team is going to win, you have to pick up that slack. And that is my mantra. If white people are now willing to listen, it's not going to be because Emmanuel Acho did not speak that they did not hear. If white people are now willing to listen, it is not going to be for a lack of Emmanuel Acho's speech that they did not hear. So am I tired? Absolutely. Am I exhausted? You better believe it. Do I think it's black people's responsibility to educate white people? Not at all. Do I think it behooves the team of humanity for those who can educate to educate? Yes. Now, can white people go get education on their own? Sure, they can read, they can watch, et cetera. And they should, they should do all those things. But there's something about conversation with firsthand experience that makes it real. Chase, uh, I've never, uh, I don't have kids, no. I can read about pregnancy I can read the human anatomy. I can hear that it's grueling, but I don't really know. One, because I've never had kids. And two, because I've never been in the delivery room. So sure, I can go watch all the movies in the world. But if you talk to someone who's given birth, you probably feel it a little differently. If you're in the room, you for sure probably feel it a little differently. So while my white brothers and sisters can watch, read, and they should, I'm a team sports guy and team sports aren't fair, but sometimes you got to pick up the slack of the man to your right and to your left and trust that one day they'll pick up yours.
0: So it doesn't imply slack, but are there just a myriad of approaches? And, you know, you mentioned you, you didn't March, but you've you've created a book and a series and used your celebrity in order to create is, is it a similar lens that you're putting on this, like each of us have different roles and you've looked at your role, perhaps different than Ejoma. or I was on the, uh, a call yesterday with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, incredible human, and it seemed like he has a different role than Ijoma or than Roxanne. And I'm trying to like hear the symphony rather than just one individual instrument. And we can only really, you know, a, a talk to one instrument at a time. And, you know, how do, how do I make sense of all of these different voices and try and be the best that I can in service of amplifying that? And, you know, should I pay more attention to some than others? Help me, you know, find the signal through the noise, especially for, for anyone out there who wants to do better. And I, I got to believe that everyone wants to.
1: Man, I think it's, it all depends on the figure of speech. What's your cup of tea? See, some people want the aggressive, Malcolm X. Some people want the more sit-back, peaceful MLK. Some people ride with MLK. Some people ride with Malcolm X. I just don't like being divisive. So what Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is doing, what Ijeoma is doing, hopefully what I am doing, what I'm not going to do is ever pick apart whatever they are doing, as long as we're all moving on the same side. Like, do, Do I think that I should not educate white people because of whatever X, Y, and Z? No. Am I gonna shun my black brother and sister that is too exhausted to educate white people? Absolutely not, but I'm going to. Another true story. Um, At 9.25 Pacific time, so it would have been like five minutes before my hit for the very first episode, before I walked into the door, Chase, it's a true story. I got a text from a black colleague of mine, Emmanuel, I really don't like this idea you're doing, questions white people have. It's not our job to educate white people how to assimilate into our society. Nobody educated us how to assimilate into theirs. And I simply texted her back, I'm gonna go as God leads. I'm not mad at her for saying that, hey, it's not my job. I said, do you, I'm gonna do me. Don't be mad at me, please. I won't be mad at you. We fighting for the same thing, hopefully. Let's all just collectively fight our battles.
0: Mm, I love the unification of this. Um, I want to shift gears because I want to get into a little bit more about the show than specifically the book. And again, for those um, who might be familiar with one or the other, they share the same name. And my understanding, especially as you've told it here, is the book stemmed from the show, correct? (laughs) Yeah, you had several conversations, Roger Goodell, NFL. Uh, you talked about race and religion. You talked with Chelsea Handler. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was an amazing episode. I was just you know, finishing that, put the polishing on that uh, right before we jumped on here. And yet the police episode to me was particularly striking um, because so close to the murder of George Floyd, both like conceptually, emotionally, the space that you took up, like what is, what, what happens, what goes through your mind? You're sharing these stories. Has any one episode been, um, the particularly stand out to you, particularly difficult, particularly insightful. I mean, they've all got, they're all loaded with wisdom and that's again, I required watching, but you were in the room you you know thought about the edit you positioned the people on the stage you know you you crafted so much of this so you know things that we don't know and I want to know what what were some of the most difficult conversations in that room regardless of what kind we, we see downstream
1: man you know it's funny so I, I I've done the whole thing kind of myself like I edit it I put the show in order um I booked the guests uh just kind of Everything you see comes from here onto the screen, which is just a crazy process. Um, I think the most difficult was the episode with the police officers. For those of y'all who haven't seen it, I go to Petaluma, California. I sit down with um, 25 police officers. Petaluma, California, less than 1% Black. It's a population of 60,000. That was the most difficult because, number one, Police officers are the front-facing units of the government. And so they know they have to stick to police officer etiquette. Chase, you're an interviewer. You know this. It is so very hard to get someone to be real when they're speaking off a note card. But this was a conversation. I needed these cops to be real for the greater good of our country. And they were. But think about this. My first question to them was, when was the last time you sat down or had dinner or conversation with a group of Black people? The resounding answer was, i I don't know if I ever have. So now I, I am the black person that they've talked to and they've probably never had a conversation with a black person that long. Think about how uncomfortable that was. I'm a black man in a room full of white officers. Um, but that conversation that was so powerful because they were so real, they were so authentic. I asked, do you lose her, your humanity when you put on a badge? I asked, do you fear for your life as a cop? I asked, do you treat black people versus white people differently? We just got real. Um, so that was the conversation. And last thing I'll say is this. Anytime you put out content, it's stressful. Because how is the audience going to digest it? That was my first episode after a two-month absence from my Roger Goodell episode. So the world is waiting. All right, Acho, what you going to come with? Wait, you sitting down with cops? It better be good. Um, And by the grace of God, after 1.4 million views in the last two weeks, um, I guess they liked it.
0: You definitely came correct. I, I would like to share a second. I was particularly struck when one of the white officers said, so when you see a police officer, do you get scared? And I think your answer was hell yeah, or not hell, but heck yeah. And... The the there was a moment just, you know, again, as a as a director myself of film and television, and there's a moment his there's just a blank second on his face. And I'm wondering, was that a particular tense moment for you in the room? I I could read it a little bit from where I was sitting and watching this, but I'm wondering if if um, I don't know how that moment felt.
1: That was a moment where I was like, okay, it's time for me to be fully honest. I have been asking all the questions. And for the most part, as the show has transitioned, I've become kind of the interviewer, and I chime in at times. But that was a question where I was like, let me be transparent. Let me be uncomfortable. Yeah, I get nervous when I see cops. And there was that little pregnant pause, Chase. I don't know if you remember what he asked after that. He says, what about when you see a black cop? He did. And I smile and I say, nah. I don't get nervous.
0: You said no nah, that's um, that different. Was, you said no, nah, it's yeah, different.
1: I say I say it's different and that was like a wait, a light bulb moment. I'm with all these white cops and they're like, "Wait, you get scared when you see us? Why don't you get scared when you see a black cop?" And I said, "Because I see that he's black first." And if white cops don't have conversations at least with some black people, then they will never understand that's a real feeling for some black people. Um, and it's funny because that is the clip that like has since gone viral on TikTok and Instagram and like just that small little, that small little bit.
0: Yeah. I think you followed up the answer with, um, look, there are three black people in the room, right? And there were 35 white people in the room and that just by that difference alone that you're the space that you're feeling in that, or the, 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 how you're feeling in that space has to be different. The context for each of you is dramatically different. And again, I, I, I don't want to spoil the show because it's, it's unbelievable episode as are, um, as are all of your shows, but th- that one in particular stood out to me. I'm wondering if there was anything else that uh, any other episode um, you know, maybe the, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, other episodes that you feel like have just been lightning rods?
1: The only other, not the only other one, because it's a lightning rod is all dependent upon where you're standing because that's who gets struck. Yeah. So for those watching, I've done an episode on interracial relationships, a black woman with a white man and a white woman with a black man, done an episode on um, racism within religion, done an episode with the commissioner of the NFL based on Colin Kaepernick kneeling, done an episode with Matthew McConaughey, Um, but the episode that sticks out to me, I did an episode with white parents raising black children. And it was because so many people emailed me saying, Emmanuel, I'm white raising black children, help. And Chase, I asked one question to the black adopted daughter with her white parents sitting there. I said, do you wish that your parents raising you were black? And it was awkward, it was uncomfortable, it was quiet. And she said, No, I'm just glad they love me for me. And um, that's when I said, that's powerful, because her answer, Chase, it resonated, not just in the audience, Mm -hmm. but to the world. So many white parents raising black children, so many black parents raising white children, realizing like, man, my child, they'll just they just grateful that I love them for them.
0: I'm trying to do everything I can to be in service of you in the show. And I want to, I want to keep, you know, I'd ask you a million questions. I also want to be respectful of your time. I know at this moment in your career, you are crushing and going from thing to thing to thing. So um, just know that you have an advocate out there in the world. There are a couple of people that I would like to connect you with in my world. And I will shoot a note to your team off uh, Mm -hmm. offline here. Manuel, I want to say thanks so much for being on the show grateful. Um, if there's anything I can do to further your message beyond what I'm doing right now, I tried to preserve the, the what you've done and not relay at all in this deal. So people can go check out your book and the show. Thank you. I'm grateful for your time and I wish you the very best.
1: My brother, the pleasure is mine. Thank you, my friend.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, before you go, I want you to know that I never, not for a millisecond, take it for granted that you have decided to spend some of your time and attention here on the show with yours truly guest or no guest. It's just an outright privilege. I don't take it for granted for a second. I want to say thank you. In line with that, this is a community and I would love if you've been moved or inspired or whatever to share this with anyone that is in your universe Uh, feel free to shout questions or, and just even a shout out to, to yours truly or the guest means the world. I want to say thanks and have a good one.